heard a lot about this uh, show, the ex-candidates. This has been a pretty thorough interview. These institutions which we've been told to respect and trust are actually completely untrustworthy. Have you confirmed that you are negative before attending tonight if you are unvaccinated? I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. So you can pay my electricity bill, you think, that was spared. We're teaching them about what it means to be a pansexual instead of teaching them how to do your taxes. It's no for me. I say no to the boys. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, joined by Adam Zara. Adam, how are you going this week and how was your uh, how was the interview last week with Dr. Melissa McCann? How do you feel about that one? I, I was very, uh, well, thanks for having me again. Well, this is part of my, partly my show too, I guess, so I'm always on here. Yes. But uh, thanks for the introduction, Stephen. I hope you're well. And um, the interview with uh, Dr. Melissa McCann, you know, was wonderful. You know, we I had a lot of feedback from a lot of um, my constituents who actually, you know, we talk about and talk with and we have regular meetings and things like that. And, um, they'll, you know, send me an email and, and say, you know, informative and good and everyone's glad that the narrative's starting to change and that, you know, it's not about the, you know, it's about the misconception and the misinformation, disinformation that was put out. You know, like people who are saying that, you know, people who didn't get vaccinated and people who didn't do this and didn't do that, they're the misinformation and the, they're the anti-vaxxers and they're the crazy ones. And then as we can see in Senate estimates and, and, and in uh, inquiries and with these uh, class actions and things between, you know, Dr. suspended Dr. William Bay and Dr. Melissa McCann, there's a lot of it was true. So people are feeling that great, that they're not, you know, they're not crazy. They're not paranoid. There was actually a lot of uh, misinformation out there. So, you know, so it was good to hear that. So it was a great interview. And I hope everyone, um, you know, who follows the show sends it to their friends and let us have a watch and let's start rebuilding and repairing the the um, the bridges between people who decided to do it and people who didn't decide to do it because um, everyone was lied to in the end. So uh, let's get that, that. Let's get, you know, recovered and let's move on. Yep, and please uh, share all our episodes out there. Follow us on Rumble and Spotify. Our numbers are definitely getting higher and higher each week, and we're getting a lot of feedback, a lot of comments, which is always uh, fun to read. Even the trolls, the trolls are starting to come after us now, so that means that we're definitely over the target. So uh, all things are uh, moving in the right direction, and we're very privileged tonight to have a a guest back on who we had in Episode 38, Professor Ian Plymer. Uh, That was an 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 excellent episode and received very very well by the audience of everyone loves listening to ian Plymer. he's probably australia's best known geologist he's the emeritus professor of earth scientists at the university of melbourne he was the professor and head of earth sciences uh he was professor at the university of newcastle professor at the university of adelaide and even the professor in munich germany now professor ian Plymer, welcome back to the show does that mean you can speak german Yes, yes, if if you say a good choice. So, yes, um, and I did German at school. Uh, We had to, at university, study a foreign language. Uh, I did two. I did Russian and German. The Russian was totally and absolutely beyond me, but the German was easy. And um, I had a German girlfriend once, and uh, I married her. Oh, wow. uh, I'm married to a German girl as well. In in this house, I'm down in the basement. I've been... Um, this is my summer study that I'm in, and uh, we're recording from my basement, and she's above trying to keep quiet. 
um, (laughs) it's a a country I know well. It's a country I've been to many times. It's a country I've lived in. I've had many um, PhD students that came from Germany, and I've sent many of my PhD students to German-speaking parts of the world, such as Austria, or mainly in Austria, but um, sometimes in southern Germany. I'm married to a German girl as well. Do you find them incredibly stubborn? <laughs> oh, um, well, actually, I'm not married to a German. I'm married to a Bavarian. Uh, oh, yes. A huge difference. <laughs> and, uh, and they don't regard themselves as German. They're, of course, they've got a different religion. They're not, uh, Catholic. They're not Lutheran. They're Catholic. And uh, they will never forget what the Prussians did to Ludwig II. Um, they they will never forget it. So uh, the Bavarians are a very different uh, tribe in the Federation. They must. Uh, the Europeans must think it's fascinating. All our issues, like you know, obviously there's a big issue with the voice coming up. You know, uh, you know, with the the you know people always say that how the treatment of the Aboriginal people and you know, the dispossession of land and things. And you look at European history and the amount the amount of times that borders changed and everything like that. It's a completely different scenario. Well, it's been very recent. I mean, it's been in my lifetime. Borders have changed, and then we've had this shuffling of borders during communist times and a shuffling of borders during Nazi times and then a renewal of borders um, after the First World War and then before the First World War we had borders shifted just after the Franco-Prussian War. So it's it's a com- constant thing. And to claim that you're pure blood or Aryan or uh, whatever just defies credulity. Yes. Now, the last time that we had you on, just before we signed off, you are talking about you are going down to Melbourne for some treatment for cancer. A lot of people reached out to us and they were concerned about your health and they you know, wanted to wish you all the best. Can you give us a little bit of, up, of an update of how that treatment went and how you're travelling at the moment? Well, you obviously don't have many trolls because they wouldn't uh, give those best wishes. So thank you, viewers. Um, uh, this this has been quite a battle. I was diagnosed purely by accident in January 2020 with a, a very aggressive metastatic melanoma. And I spent most of 2020 in Melbourne having treatment. And rather than sit around and moan and groan, I wrote that book, Not uh, not for Greens. Um, sorry, uh, Green Murder. Yes. Um, not for Greens is an earlier book I wrote. And I wrote Green Murder. Um, and... Um, I had some difficult choices to make. Was I going to go down the chemotherapy route where I had a 2.3% chance of survival over five years, go down radiation therapy, or try a relatively new technique, which is immunotherapy? So as a scientist, I did the right thing, and I asked the medical um, chap to say, well, what drugs are you going to put me on? He gave me a list of them. I said, okay, now you're going to give me a list of the scientific papers written about these drugs. (laughs) We'll talk about my treatment tomorrow. And I read these papers, and this was one of these very, very unusual medicos who's not really up himself, a medico who is curious. He's got a great interest in patients and science. And uh, eventually he fed me probably about two metres vertically of scientific paper that I read. Uh, We discussed them. I certainly didn't understand them because I'm not medically trained, but I could certainly understand the scientific method, how they did the tests, how statistically valid they were, how many people recovered, how many didn't. And a protocol was worked out, and it was an immunotherapy protocol. And I was in a pretty bad way in 2020. And if 
we hadn't caught it early in 2020, I would have shuffled off. And by the time I got back home to Adelaide at the end of 2020, my stem cell count had gone down. Um, clearly, the drugs were on top of it. And I, I had drugs. I had hyperbaric treatment, hypothermic treatment. Um, since diagnosis, I've had 492 holes put in me. And I still don't leak, but my veins are shot. My, my whole career as a drug addict is destroyed. I can't possibly um, inject myself any longer. Um, and then um, last year, I had a bit of an experiment with myself. I thought, well, the stem cell count is, is not too bad. Let me just test. Let me test some of the theories on cancer. And one of them is that cancer thrives on carbs and sugars. Yes. And there's a, a well-known book out, How to Starve Cancer. And it's, it's basically a keto diet. So this, this book tells you to cut out on the carbs. I thought, well, I'll give it a trial. Ease up on some of the drugs and I'll take some more carbs. And the stem cell count went through the roof. <laughs> and so... Uh, to me, that was a negative test that showed that the treatment I was having, I was on the right path. So at the beginning of 2023, I went back to Melbourne and uh, had daily treatment, and that was six days a week, um, infusions every day, hyperbaric treatment, hypothermic treatment, and taking, I now take about 84 pills a day, um, and I take them in two separate tranches. And again, the stem cell count has gone down enormously. It's now the lowest it's ever been. And so I think I'm on the right track. So what I did was when I was diagnosed, I wasn't going to accept what a medical practitioner said to me. And this was even before we were lied to and had a lot of misinformation uh, under COVID. This is just the normal way, I think, as a scientist. I want to see the evidence. And fortunately, I had a medico who was very, very receptive to me questioning him and pushing him and that forced him to be more curious it forced him to uh, basically assess the treatment he was giving me and other patients and it was really quite an interesting journey and so I now have a, a um, immunotherapy and um, treatment I'm on a keto diet which is basically no carbs no sugars um, but eating everything you can normally eat um, and having um, fat, you know, can have dairy, have fatty meats, etc. And that has been coincidental with my stem cell count going down. And I've also lost about 15 kilos, which uh, I could afford to lose uh, because I had quite a passion for beer. And if ever you want to make cancer grow and if ever you want to put on weight, then drink beer. <laughs> I, I, I can't now. However, however, there's some really good news. One of the drugs I take is resveratrol. And resveratrol is a drug that you find in red wine. So I take a double dose of res or triple dose of resveratrol. I take it in a tablet in the morning, a tablet in the evening, and I wash down those tablets with a resveratrol-containing liquid. Um, so um, I, I would urge anyone who um, is diagnosed with cancer to get a second opinion, get a third opinion, get a fourth opinion, Read as much as you can. There's a wonderful book out by a lady called Jane McClelland called How to Starve Cancer. You can get it on Amazon. It'll come in a couple of days. And she talks about her journey at the beginning of the book, but at the end she goes through a treatment process. She was at stage four cancer. They told her to go home and get your affairs in order. She was gone for all money. And she 
managed to persuade her medicators that maybe chemotherapy wasn't the way to go. Maybe there are other ways of doing it through diet and through drugs. And most of the drugs I've got are vitamin supplements or similar sorts of things. A lot of the drugs I'm taking are drugs that are um, now out of patent. Some of the drugs I'm taking are veterinary drugs. Uh, some of the things I take, uh, some of the fungal um, drugs that I take would kill a dead camel. I mean, these are shocking mm. things to drink. But mm. I'm here and I'm alive and uh, I, I don't think I'll ever be cured, but I can I can actually manage this cancer. And that's the best I can have with a very aggressive cancer. So while I had cancer treatment in Melbourne earlier this year, I'm not going to sit around and moan, so I'll write another book. And uh, this is a book that's coming out at CPAC in a few days' time. And this is a trilogy of books for school children. And it's called The Little Green Book. The title is stolen, but uh, you steal a, a title from a, a communist leader. Well, they steal all sorts of stuff without <laughs> copyright from us. So <laughs> and we can steal from them. And so um, the other thing I, I say to anyone that might had been diagnosed with cancer is winning the game is up here. You've got to be extremely positive. You've got to be absolutely ruthless in your focus and your determination. Um, the only thing that's in your mind is to be healthy and to stay alive. And you actually have to take your treatment. You can't say, oh, I'm going to have a sickie today and I won't, I won't take my treatment. So it, it's been a very interesting journey. It's also been a very interesting journey into how the medical practitioners operate because there are many people who are diagnosing and um, helping people through immunotherapy, but the TGA is onto them and the TGA is trying to, is trying to stop them practice. Now, we saw this with COVID. We see it with uh, a lot of quacks, and you have to be very, very careful that you're not going down the path of quackery, that you're actually having a trained medical practitioner who is actually licensed to be able to write you prescriptions. Mm -hmm. But the TGA, most of the, most of the TGA funding comes from the big drug companies. The TGA yep. yes. are pushing big drug company um, products. Now, these products cost a fortune. They're paid for by Medicare. They're paid for by the taxpayer. And the drug companies don't give a stuff if you live or die. There's someone in the queue behind you waiting to get cancer treatment. All they're doing is selling their drugs. So I would very, very strongly recommend to anyone who's got cancer to get second, third, fourth opinions, go to an integrative physician, someone who looks at everything how the body works. Go to someone who might not be a mainstream um, medico, but is still um, trained and practices as a medical practitioner. So uh, it's an interesting journey. Um, you meet many interesting people on that journey who have cancer, many who have left it too late before they take treatment, and many who are a little bit slack about it and think that they're bulletproof and immortal. You're not immortal. Your medical practitioners like most of the students I've ever taught, uh, thousands of people that I've put through degrees, very few of them keep up with the scientific literature after they get a degree. It is the same with medical practitioners. So you have to get someone who is actually up to date with the literature, reads the literature all the time, is constantly uh, revising on the basis of new evidence. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult path. You've got to be very focused. But... Um, 
I'm quite happy to help anyone that, that contacts me. I don't use the words reach out because my arms are not that long, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to guide someone. I'm not a medical practitioner, but um, I've got to know a few people who um, uh, are a little bit different. Wow. So, well, you're looking really well. So we're glad that you've got it under control. And I'm um, glad that you found some, um, you know, protocols that are really helping you. Um, I've heard about starving. I think I've heard about that um, How to Starve Cancer book myself. And I think, because um, I was, was going to say to you, stop eating sugar straight away. Like, you know, stop eating sugar. Um, but um, good on you for all that. And I'm sure that's um, actually very, very good advice. And your statements there about TGA being fully funded pretty much 96% by, um, by big pharmaceutical companies and things like that just goes to show that you know all everything that you said there has been backed up by medical professionals um, through the likes of um, suspended Dr William Bay and through uh, Dr Melissa McCann and I think um, Professor Robin Cosford as well she was even saying things about that as well so you should actually check some of those episodes out if you ever get a chance uh, Professor I will now, the TGA claim they're independent how dare they how yeah. dare they actually suspend people who uh, are medically trained and are trying to save a patient's life. In my experience of more than 40 years in universities, of which 30 were as a chair, the very best students I ever had went in, into the mining and exploration industry. The second best ones went into research at universities in the CSIRO, and the third best ones went into government agencies equivalent to the TGA. And so what we've got are third-rate people who are envious of people who are successful, who might be um, going against the mainstream, might be thinking for themselves and might be actually curing people because yeah. that is an attack on their power. This has got mm -hmm. nothing to do with helping people. It's a, a, a power game. And the mm -hmm. TGA are right up there, well-financed, and, and they can kill off a doctor's future. This is really interesting because you've not only been involved in the university system, you've gone through this health scare, uh, but you've also obviously had a very successful career as a geologist. Do you see a very uh, do you see a clear correlation between uh, you know the, what you're talking about with the medical industry and what's happening in the climate saga area, like where climate science is being distorted in the same way as medical science is being distorted? Yes, very much so. Um, there was a very good article in The Spectator a couple of days ago by Matt Ridley, uh, Viscount Ridley, who's a friend of mine. He's scientifically trained. He's a science journalist. And he was writing about the number of scientific papers, especially in medicine, that are shown to be wrong or are withdrawn or shown to be fraudulent. Now, that's right across all of science. It's right across the climate industry. And um, my attacks on the climate industry are based on the scientific method. My reading of all the cancer papers were on the scientific method. I didn't understand the science of the cancer papers, but I could, I could see if a sample size of 11 people was used, that wasn't valid because in exploration geochemistry, I might use a sample size of 100,000. And we still argue about what it means. With 11 patients, um, it's hardly worthwhile. So I see very much the same parallels, and science is very corrupted, and it's corrupted by the money. Now, in the climate industry, there are really only two questions that I would request they answer. The first is, can you please give me half a dozen scientific papers 
that show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Now, I've asked scientists that. I've asked a former chief scientist. I work on a board with him. He's just obfuscated. I have never seen the science that shows that human emissions drive global warming. Now, if there were such science out there, then I'd also like to see the, um, these people show me that the 97% of emissions are natural emissions don't drive global warming. So a really simple question, just show me the evidence. The second question is, can you please explain how in chemistry and from ice core drilling that every time we get a natural warming, much later we get an increase in carbon dioxide? That's the exact inverse of what you're telling me. You're telling me that when we emit carbon dioxide, that uh, creates a warming of the atmosphere. But chemistry... And ice core chemistry shows the exact opposite. So please explain. And they're the two fundamental scientific questions. Now, in science, there's what's called the coherence criterion. And so if I'm talking about climate change, then what I need to say has to be in accord with what the physicists say, with what the astronomers say, with what the chemists say, and with what I say as a geologist. And this so-called field of climate science, and I don't think it's a science, this so-called field is not in accord with what has been validated in other fields of science. Therefore, according to the coherence criterion, it is invalid. You throw it out. And you can go even further. You can look at, say, the medieval warming, when a 1,000 years ago it was about 5 degrees warmer than now. A 1,000 years ago it was well recorded in history that it's warmer. We had crop records. Uh, we had history that was written down. We have many chemical fingerprints that we can use. We've got astronomers that can combine with geologists and combine with isotope chemists and say, yes, it was five degrees or so warmer for about 400 years. So um, the so-called scientists uh, practising climate then have to be able to show me why the warming that we're having today is, is not natural because we've had natural warmings before. Mm -hmm. Why isn't the current warming natural? So I don't regard climate science as science. I regard it as a well-funded field of propaganda, and it works very well because people will open their wallet when they're frightened. Governments like to keep populations frightened. And very few people are scientifically trained, and very few people um, can actually spot misinformation and disinformation in science. Well, the scary thing and something that I've looked into is uh, the manipulation that's going on in the universities, but also the schools and things that the kids are getting presented with. You know, I've, we've spoken to kids that are in high school and, and, and university and they just said they're getting bombarded with this message all the time about climate change and climate alarmism and we need to do we need to bring in renewables and get rid of coal and all these messages that they're hearing constantly was that a big motivator for you in writing these books to reach well, out in, in, in writing the trilogy it was because our children suffer child abuse at school a lot of the teachers are teaching them the ideas of weirdos a lot of kids at school are being taught that uh, the end of the world is coming a lot of kids are being taught gender bending. Kids are not being taught simple things like how to read and write 
and do simple arithmetic in their head. They're not being outside. They're screen screen warriors the whole time. They're not falling out of trees and breaking your arms. So in this trilogy, the first book was written for kids that are 8 to, say, 12 years old, and that was very much inspired by kids that age that I know, and I have a a 7-year-old grandson in Montreal in Canada, and he showed me one of his latest books and, and... very proudly held it up to me and was giggling away. And the title of that book was Girls Don't Fart. Now, he wasn't aware that the first book that I've written for ankle biters is about how when you eat, then you consume food which is carbon-rich. And you metabolise that and you breathe out carbon dioxide. So you breathe in 0.04%. And I don't use those figures for the kids, but you... You breathe in 0.04% and you breathe out 4%. So what's happening is your body is converting food into carbon dioxide, which you breathe out. I didn't go into the fact that when you go to bed at night, if you don't get up for a piddle, you wake up and you're about 200 grams lighter. And that's because you breathe out carbon dioxide. So I go into food and I go into how that food is converted into poo and what poo's made of, and why it's poisonous with the uh, pathogens and the viruses and the bacteria. I then go into we, and I I give them experiments to do, having a piddle here and having a piddle there. Kids love that sort of stuff. Um, (laughs) Then I go into farts. Now, the chemistry of farts is quite fascinating. Most farts have got about... 7% 7% methane in them, and I warn kids, oh, don't light a fart, you know, you know, you'll see. <laughs> um, and anyone that lights a fart's got to wear knickers, you know. Yeah, we've um, all done that. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I'm, uh, this is a seditious book. It's politically incorrect. And if it's kids to screech around rolling with laughter, I talk about earwax and boogers and, and snot and how this is the way the body's getting rid of carbon and how you can't have carbon pollution. It's just not possible. Yeah. How you can't have net zero carbon. And I, I write a story about eating cookies. I mean, poo, wee, fart, snot, um, uh, boogers, earwax, uh, and write that all into a story. And that's for basically parents and grandparents to share with their kids. And it's a bonding session where kids, eight-year-old kids, roll around stretching with laughter about farts. And I've, you know, I've, I've told them the the dangers of getting into a lift, and just as the door's shut, you fart. You know, don't do that. <laughs> um, and I've, uh, suggested the diet that they have when they go on a school excursion, what you should eat before you go on a school excursion, and how fast farts move through the air. So very quickly, you know, someone else can be blamed. But, you know, if, if, <laughs> if, you, if you smell it, then obviously you did it. So <laughs> keep your mouth shut and go into all the sort of things that make kids uh, roll around laughing. And the second book is for teenagers. And these are teenagers who just get bombarded with scientific porn at school about climate change. They should be learning the periodic table. They should be learning uh, simple mathematics. They should be learning simple physics and chemistry, but they're not. They should be learning about photosynthesis. So I go into this book about how we're living in a time when 
we have fewer bushfires than we've ever had, when we've we've had less damage from hurricanes and cyclones than we've had, when sea level is actually not rapidly rising, um, when we're much more prosperous. So I just go and say, look, um, you are being told that we've got more hurricanes, that we've got more bushfires, that we've got more floods. This is not the case. And I just show them very simple graphs. Now, that second book is written in the style of the books, the sequence of books called Horrible History, with little inserts, a lot of cartoons, a lot of colour. They're both in colour and and a lot of humour, a lot of jokes. Um, And it's also preying on what kids that age are developing, and that is a sense of justice. What you often hear from a teenager is, ah, that's not fair. Well, I talk about electric vehicles. Is it fair that you swan around in one of these and someone your age in the Congo has died in an underground uh, uh, mine, an open pit or from cobalt poisoning, giving you the cobalt for that vehicle? There must be better ways. So it is not morally superior to drive an electric vehicle. I go into the damage and the poisoning that wind and solar give. You can't use financial arguments for kids that age because they're not out there earning the money paying the tax. So I use a lot of the moral arguments and, and just give them the data. And that's a book, again, which I hope... Um, it's written paragraph by paragraph, so a kid can read a paragraph and come back to it and mull over it. But my hope, again, is that's a book for parents and grandparents to get onto the kids. And the third one in the trilogy is for people who are post-secondary school, anyone from 16 to, to uh, 75, and it's a very brief summary of the first-year lectures that I used to give at various universities. I loved teaching first year. You would get people come into a room, you'd have 300 people in there and you'd strut in and they would think, what the hell's going to this geology about? What's it all about? And I'd just give them the history of the planet. I'd point out that, yes, we have had climate boiling and that was when the surface of the planet was so hot 4,000 million years ago that when rain fell, it boiled off. And it's not until we had a cool surface that we had oceans and then we start to have life. And then I go into the um, just the history of the planet, looking at the um, five major mass extinctions we've had of complex life, looking at the, the more than 20 minor mass extinctions, looking at the six great ice ages, looking at carbon dioxide over time, and there's some very uncomfortable conclusions. And that is that... We've had great ice ages when we had 20% carbon dioxide in the atmosphere compared with the current 0.04%. It's not possible that carbon dioxide can drive global warming. And then I look at the last 500 million years where we've had a decrease of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere from 0.7% to the current 0.04%. During that decrease... We've stressed plants so much that we had a new group of plants, the C4 plants appear. They're things like sugarcane and, and, and corn, and they appeared. We are now in a period in the history of the planet where if we halved the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, plants would die. And so instead of looking at one hot day 
or one day when you've got a big flood or one day when you've got a bushfire, look at the trends. The trend is your friends. Look at it over time. And the planet is evolving. So I've looked at the evolution of the crust, the evolution of the atmosphere. We're into our third atmosphere now. The evolution of life and the extinction of life. And basically it's it's a watered-down summary of my first-year geology lectures. And anyone who's a geologist, I mean, you can count on a sawmiller's hand the number of geologists who would argue that humans um, change climate. You just can't do it. The evidence is not there. And then I finish off talking a little bit about the policy consequences of getting this wrong. We've got this seriously wrong, and we've got things seriously wrong in the past. In the Soviet Union, we had Lysenkoism, where... Genetics and fertilisers didn't help plants grow. That was the mantra. All seeds were equal in the communist world. And the Soviet Union suffered about 30 million people, died in famines. Um, And Lysenko disappeared at the time when Khrushchev came in. But I went to the Soviet Union 20 years later. And you could still see when you crossed from Soviet Karelia into Finnish Karelia, the size of the wheat was four times greater in Finland. They'd use genetics. Now, if you were a geneticist in the times of Lysenko, you got sent to the gulags. You were killed. You lost your job. And I draw a comparison now with what's happening with those people who argue differently, say, on COVID or on climate. What happens to them? They don't go to gulags, but they certainly lose their jobs. Uh, They they certainly um, are in a position where they can't hold a position of authority. So... I, I talk about the social implications of this really bad policy, the social implications of destroying agricultural land with solar panels and wind turbines, just land that feeds us. Uh, again, you can't talk economics to kids who are not paying tax. Um, you can to people who are earning money and paying tax. So yep. this is an attempt to get at school children through their parents and their grandparents. It's a trilogy written in a fairly entertaining way. It's a galloping style. It's entertaining. Uh, and and the aim of the exercise is to say, kids, look, there's something else besides doom and gloom. There's a great world out there. It's good to be positive about it. And many of us have come from behind the eight ball. Many of us were born on the wrong side of the tracks. Many of us have had hardship, but we can get over it. And yep. you could be one of those. Yeah, and you can't do it when, um, you know, if you're listening to all these climate alarmists saying that the world's going to end in 2030, right? There's no point if, if, you live like, if you live a life dreaming thinking about that. Well, I also point out that these climate alarmists are basically, I don't use the word, but they're Malthusian, that they're, they're in a death cult. And I, I point out that, look, I'm, I'm very happy to die, um, um, but if you think climate change is going to, uh, you know, we should all die, um, then you go first, and I promise you, I really promise you, I'm going to follow. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but with with all the inflation and everything that's going on at the moment, you're only selling these books for 19.95 each. That's that's a steal almost. I mean, that's like that's buying lunch really for some people. Well, there's a couple of things. I have a very good publisher um, who has a social conscience. Um, I'm comfortable in life. I don't need any royalties and i did give them away um and uh, the aim is to have people buy them now um on friday we had someone ring up and want to buy fifty thousand dollars worth so 
um, on Friday we were still printing the third book and we just turned the presses around and keep printing. So we've struck that price very deliberately. It's been a real struggle financially for volumes one and two, which have got a lot of colour plates in them and a lot of colour diagrams. Um, It's been a real struggle financially, but there, there are ways of solving that. Um, but the aim is to get the message out there. The aim is 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 not to have um, a, a book that's fifty nine ninety five, um, and only one or two people buy. I want this book to go everywhere. Yeah, and I, I know living on the northern beaches, there's a lot of community libraries around, even just the local library. I mean, if you throw a hundred dollars in and buy five of these ankle biter books and just put them in the community library, so people can read them. You know, they might not want to buy them themselves, but if they see it there available they might pick it up and have a look and it might just completely change the course of their child's history or their the well, outlook on viewers to do that because libraries don't go out and buy books they are um obliged not legally obliged but obliged if you ask them to get a book they're obliged to go and buy it and put it on the shelves okay so best to your local library get them i'm going to get I'm going to get my local community group because I've got a local group with me that's about there's about 20 to 50 strong at any one time, and um, I'm going to get them to go to every library in Campbelltown in the, in our area, wherever they go, and request the book, request your books. Well, that's a great thing to do. Request the latest one, and the reason for that is that it's very cheap. So the libraries can't say, oh, this is too expensive. And the second thing is it's up to date. And the third thing is um, that it's written in a very, very different style. I've had many people say, look, what you write's a bit too scientific. Well, I've, I've written it, written these books in three different styles, three different languages, three different senses of humour. Um, I've listened to what my grandkids have told me. I've had... Um, two of my grandkids um, actually read them and comment. I've had one of my kids read it and comment on them. I've had one, two, three, four others read and comment on them. Um, I always get my stuff read by others. Um, I guess that's a form of peer review. But um, when the people I choose to read my stuff, uh, most of them are former students. And I was very tough on my students. I, if I had a comma in the wrong place, I would hit them hard. And so they look for every opportunity to get me back. <laughs> and I really enjoy that. That's wonderful. So, and I tell you what, at, at 1995 per book, it's a way that you you know not you can buy a set for yourself at home. And you know what you could do, people out there, buy a set and donate it to your school library for your kids. Okay, yes, send it to and, the school. And, a lot of people my age have multiple grandchildren. I've, I've got grandchildren at uh, 22, uh, 13, 9 and 7. Uh, the last three are in Canada, but they'll get a copy. Um, yep. And I've written it also such that it's not a, a, an Australian book. It's a book that people in the England or Fiji or New Zealand or Canada or the US, they can read it. The examples I give are few and far between because kids don't have an idea of geography. If you talk about the Northwest Strait, they don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Uh, you can't do that to kids. So uh, I've had to write it in a language assuming that they don't know any geography, assuming that if they've travelled overseas, then in Australia, they've probably been to some flesh pot like Bali and haven't really gone and seen poor people in, say, Black Africa or South America or Central America. So I've made those assumptions. Um, I think they're right. And I've written it 
for the world because previous books I've used a lot of examples from Australia. Well, of course, I know Australia very well, but I've, you know, I've worked as a geologist in in nearly a hundred countries. I, you know, I've, I've lived in the Middle East. I've, I've lived in Africa. I'm currently working in in Ecuador. You get to know these countries, and it, it's probably one of the best jobs you can ever have. Actually, someone mm. pays you to fly up a pointy end of the plane, and you go to parts of the world where tourists spend a fortune to go there, and you get paid to go there. I mean, yeah, wow. doesn't get better. <laughs> well, so this, you know, passion. Yeah, so this yeah, book's oh, really, um, is a key thing. But what I'm trying to do is one of the subtexts in the third book is to have my passion um, come out. And so I just recalled how I used to give my lectures to first-year students. And I was the first face they saw. Um, and I used to give a lecture on showing how the moon was made of green cheese. Well, I've now put that down into two paragraphs, and basically, it's a tool. It, those two paragraphs are about the scientific method. I can give you data that shows you that the moon is made of green cheese. What's more, it's a Norwegian green cheese, and wow. this is a this is an exercise in saying, "Oh, don't be ridiculous." Well, show me the evidence. And so um, I, I play these games, which I used to in lectures. Play these games with. Um, with uh, with the people who are reading it, and if any of your viewers are former students I've had, you you will know the sort of lectures I gave, and I had a lot of fun giving them. And, and most of the time, it was impossible to take notes because it was an interaction. I would ask questions, and people would have to come back to me. So I've done the same. I've asked in these books a lot of questions. Um, I've got kids to do experiments, um, little experiments that um, even down to the stage of the first book, the ankle biters book, and looking at a bit of um, a booger under a microscope. What do you see? Now, there's 80,000 tonnes a year of extraterrestrial dust that drops onto the earth. Your nasal hairs um, collect any dust. Most of it's terrestrial, but there's a really faint chance that your booger will have an extraterrestrial in it. So pick one out. Look at it under the microscope and see if you can see an extraterrestrial in your booger. And it's worth <laughs> keeping and collecting. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, I didn't know that. I didn't even know no, that at all. No, that's the aim of the exercise. Exactly the response you gave me is what I want. People smiling and laughing, saying, oh, wow. Because kids love that sort of thing. Kids actually like to be inspired. Yes. They don't want to be frightened yes. in school. They want to be inspired. They want to say, wow, let me give this a go. You know? Yeah. Can I I use the microscope? Why? Oh, I want to look at some snot. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a bit of a, like, I'm a toy collector. Not really a toy collector, but I try to collect stuff, and I think, you know, and I was looking at some some of the links that I get, you know, from social medias and stuff regarding toys and outside of politics, outside of all this kind of stuff. It's just some, it's just my fun thing that I can look at. They used to actually sell a science lab kit back, I think, in the 40s or 50s, and it had a small amount of uranium in it. Yeah, it was radioactive. I, I had one of those as a kid, um, and, and you you would be looking at, at the um, fluorescence. Um, you would have experiments on fluorescence and phosphorescence. You would play with uranium. Um, you also had chemicals now which, as a terrorist, you'd pray to get. And that's <laughs> I got interested in science because... You could go down the local hardware store and buy stuff, and we made bombs. 
And they were fabulous, these bombs. You could go down the hardware store and buy half a dozen sticks of gelignite. You'd just say, oh, Dad wants to blow out a few logs. And they'd sell it to you. And you'd get get powdered zinc. You'd get potassium permanganate. You'd get ammonium nitrate and foe. Wonderful explosives. And, And we had fun. And this is when you learn things like hydrogen. Hydrogen is magnificent for an explosion. But you can't store it. This is why the hydrogen cars are never going to work. So that got me really interested in in chemistry. And then my further interest came when I thought, well, where do we get these chemicals from? How do you make copper wire? And I asked teachers, and these were retired, well, former RAF people and former soldiers, and they were trying to make the planet a better place. That's in the horrors of war. And they would tell you. Often they didn't know, but they'd look it up and tell you later. And so I got really interested in how you make copper wire, which then got me back to the copper minerals, which then got me back into how do you find them, and that's using the electrical conductivity of the copper minerals um, and using the chemistry of soils and rocks. And so... Um, those old chemistry sets gave a lot of kids like me a voyage of destruction, but it was also a voyage of discovery. So, you know, I, I used to kill bull ants. Um, I had these wonderful bombs and poisons I put down there. But some of the things we had were strong acids, nitric acid, uh, yep. strong um, alkalis. Uh, these are bloody dangerous chemicals, but you could buy them. But you see, the thing is too. But you learned as a kid that you you would we would respect those chemicals. All right, you'd have fun with them, but you would run like hell. So if you, I mean, we, you know, you you, you would set it up, and you know it's going to blow up. So you would run like hell. Like it's yeah, not like you're standing right. there holding it in your hand no, or anything not. like that. You knew what you're doing. You just wanted to make the biggest bang possible. Yeah, you knew exactly right. what you were doing, and. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, there, there were a few Darwin Awards that came out of people playing with chemicals like that. There was one one of the kids at school killed himself um, with, with with an explosion. But um, you know, he, he was a real drongo, and if you're going to have a Darwin Award, he was he was at the top of the list for it. So, Honestly, um, I mean. Sorry. No, but this stuff's fantastic because you're getting kids to to investigate, and instead of just yeah. being told what it is, being told that you know the Earth's coming to an end, and in twelve years' time it's all over, and this, you're actually getting them inspired to investigate these questions themselves. And and kids are smart. My daughter, she's not even two years old yet; she'll be two next month. And you you can tell she can't talk; she can say a few words and things. But if you show her how to do things and then get her to do it herself she loves it but if you just say no you got to do it this way she's not interested she wants to no, it's a sense of achievement and and um what is better to have a sense of depression or a sense of achievement yes. what is better to have a thrill of learning or the pain of being told oh you're going to die um <laughs> it's all going to end and it's all your fault by the way well, this this brings us to some uh, something that happened in the UN uh, recently. This is the UN secretary, um, ge- the UN secretary secretary general. So it's no longer global warming. It's no longer just climate change. Now it is global boiling. Sorry, that July twenty twenty three is set to be the hottest month ever recorded in human history. The consequences are clear and they are tragic. Children swept away by monsoon rains, families running from the flames, workers collapsing in scorching heat. 
And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. All this is entirely consistent with predictions and repeated warnings. The only surprise is the speed of the change. The era of global warming has ended. The era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable. The heat is unbearable. And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Now, well, a couple, a couple of points. What would you expect from a failed socialist? What would you expect from the Guardian? And what would you expect for someone that wallows in superlatives intertwined with ignorance? We have had periods when it's been much warmer than now. We've had periods when it's been colder. And you've only got to look at history, archaeology or geology. So if people says, oh, um, this is the warmest times we've ever had, you've got to say, well, since when? Uh, since we had the Little Ice Age, we've been warming. Since the medieval warming, we've been cooling. Since the Dark Ages, we've been warming. Since Roman times, we've been cooling. So it's very much relative and it's perspective. The second thing is that some clown got on top of that and claimed that this is the hottest time we've had for 125,000 years. Now, that was a well-chosen figure because that was the peak of the penultimate interglacial. We're currently in an interglacial, and that's the period between when ice is expanding and um, when ice is contracting. And, and ice contracts in an interglacial. Our current interglacial started 14,700 years ago. It was at its peak 7,000 to 4,000 years ago. And we've been cooling for the last 4,000 years, during which time we've had spikes of warm and spikes of cooling. So, again, if you want to claim that this is the hottest time we've had forever, you all you've got to say is since when. Now, it wasn't the hottest time. Uh, July in the Northern Hemisphere, there was unseasonal snow in many, many parts of the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, it certainly wasn't unseasonally warm in um, Australasia. And if you want to talk about global warming, I would have thought that in Australia we would have had a, a very warm winter. We didn't. It's been quite a cold winter. So that is just sheer hype. It's sheer exaggeration. And it's basically socialists trying to close down our current system such that they control everything you do, everything you think about, where you travel to, when you travel, what you eat and where your money goes to. And the answer is no. We've spent hundreds of years getting ourselves to this position. Wealthy countries don't become wealthy overnight. It takes a very long period of time and it takes a certain sort of culture. And these are cultures which are, are basically Western civilization. Um, there are a few other wealthy countries, but uh, they're despotic countries. But um, what uh, Antonio Guterres is trying to tell us is that we have to give up all of our culture because the planet is warming. He's presented no evidence for that. He can't think of a better superlative than boiling. Uh, and he was uh, roundly criticised around the world. And even the new president of the IPCC um, basically said, hold it, you know, we can't exaggerate too much. Things are not that bad. Now, he's not going to last long because you can't have a president of the IPCC not exaggerate and not frighten us witless. 
We had a previous president of the IPCC who was eminently qualified during the day. He was a railway engineer, and at night time he wrote porn. And I would have thought uh, the scientific porn coming out of the IPCC is very little different from the porn that came out of a previous uh, chairman of the IPCC. Hmm. <laughs> surely, surely people can't believe this stuff anymore. Well, you've used a very interesting verb, believe. believe. The word believe... Uh, is used in religion and in politics. It's not used in science. Science is married to evidence. And we come to conclusions based on evidence. And if we have new evidence or thought about the evidence or recalculated, we might change our conclusions. So um, it is a belief. It is the new anti-Western religion. We have just about destroyed the family. We've just about destroyed... Christianity, and we pretty well destroyed our education system and science, and we replace it with a new religion, something that people have to believe in, something where um, you can have a belief where you're a sinner and you can repent and pay um, your indulgences. And by paying your indulgences with your high electricity prices, you might actually go to the Gaia heaven. It's a new religion. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I, my, that was my biggest thing as well, especially when I started running in politics and you start te- speaking to people about these things more. Um, you know, our position was like very similar to your position about, you know, the whole climate change thing and all that. So um, people used to say to me, but I believe in it. And I'm like, I just used to say to them, like, say to these people, you know, believe in God. You know, don't believe, you know, science is, um, you know, evidence based, factual based, like it's repeatable. And if you're can just going to turn around and say, hey, we're at a boiling point, we'll prove it. And, I mean, honestly, how much – I know that there's differences between, like, like I'm in a small room right now. I've got my little heater going, okay? There's no windows open, okay? Um, my The carbon dioxide in this room would be far more than 0.04%. Oh, yeah, you'd be at 0.1% in there, yeah. Right, Maybe so more. 0.1%, right, right? So, well, so, I mean, at what level would it take – you know how much carbon dioxide you you were saying yourself that there was uh, 20 percent that was cut. You've you've seen in a ge- geological study yeah. that the, the carbon dioxide was twenty percent in the atmosphere. Were there still animals and humans or no. animals breathing no, at that time? At that time, there were only bacteria. Um, but we humans know that we can live in about seven percent carbon dioxide. People in submarines, for example, we know that in a crowded room you can get 0.3 percent carbon dioxide compared with zero point zero four. And what I do in this book is to um, tell kids that and say, now you put it to the test. You go and find someone you really don't like. Mm-hmm. because you're breathing out 4% carbon dioxide, and if that was a poison, it'd kill them. Find someone you really don't like and give them a big kiss. Don't do it with a dog because the dog will lick you back. But <laughs> find someone you can kiss and just see if it kills them. So right. basically say, look, kids, you're being fed codswallop. Yeah. Well, the world so, is being fed codswallop. Yeah. I think, you know, these books should be mandatory reading for everybody, I think, you know, every public toilet, every place, you know, you know, we're good, a few flyers, you know, take some key points out of each book and just get some flyers written up. Actually, I'm going to tell my group about this because we'll do it. They're actually really active. And what we'll do is we'll get these flyers and we'll just go stick them up everywhere and people can just, you know. Well, if your group books. is that active, I'll come down your way and uh, I'll give a talk. We'll have a book launch, a Campbelltown book launch. Campbelltown book launch. Yep. Happy right. to do that in September or October. Let's do it.
Campbell Town. Oh, I can come right, down right, we'll we'll, we'll fill a room. I reckon we could fill a room. I, 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 I fill rooms in many places. I, I don't mind people who have a different <clears> view coming along because uh, I use facts. What do you use? If you use beliefs, then I suggest you get on your unicorn and go down the bottom of the garden and talk to the fairies um, to get some more um, information. But the travesty in all of this is we've completely destroyed our energy sector. Now, uh, Chris Bowen's talking about offshore wind farms and even the Liberals are talking about transitioning from coal to nuclear. How do you feel about those two things? I guess the the nuclear side of things is probably more interesting. So let's talk about the offshore wind farms first. Um, The last time we spoke to you, you were talking about the energy consumption it takes just to build wind farms. But these are offshore wind farms. Just imagine the the steel and the concrete and everything that would go into the footings. And the corrosion and the short life and the fact that they kill um, uh, whales, porpoises, etc. It's very well documented. Uh, These things are horrendously expensive. They don't last very long, and I can't see why we should be spending so much money when they don't give us energy 24-7. Now, um, I heard Malcolm Roberts the other day um, on Alan Jones. He came on just after me, and he was arguing that, in fact, we shouldn't only be blaming Labor for these poor policies. The Libs have put in some appalling policies, both state and federally, and he's absolutely correct. Um, it's really only one nation that, that's actually had a consistent and uh, viable policy for energy. So um, we have our Liberal Party has realised that they can't go down this route any longer. And I think that's why they're supporting nuclear fairly strongly. Now, nuclear, for me, is a no-brainer. Um, we produce a lot of um, uh, yellow cake. We should be able to beneficiate that and use it uh, in nuclear reactors. We've already got a a reactor that's been in Sydney for 60 years. We've we've got a nuclear-trained people to run the, that reactor. Um, we've uh, almost had a reactor at Jarvis Bay on the south coast of New South Wales, but that was killed off by Billy McMahon in April of 1971. And the foundations are there, the great highways built out to it. So um, ultimately, we have to get a source of reliable energy, which is 24-7 and it's got a lot of grunt. Now, if it isn't nuclear, it's got to be coal. Yep. Um, gas um, is probably good for peak load, as would hydro. But um, we we have to get real. We have to do what countries like Finland and Sweden have done and, and just have a mix of power. Now, there's a great argument for using solar, and that's on uh, a phone box at Tipperborough or um, railway signals at Udna Data, uh, where it's just too expensive to put in a grid and to have a generator there. Um, there's a great argument for wind, and many outback stations have had wind for a long period of time. Yeah. But you can't run an industrial country on wind and solar. You can't take out prime fishing grounds, prime uh, vistas that are beautiful that tourists come to look at. You can't take out prime agricultural land um, by wind and solar. This has got to stop. And uh, to make it worse, the wind and solar companies uh, are foreign-owned, and they're saying, well, if Australians are so stupid, we'll capitalise on the system, we'll make a fortune, we'll just walk out and leave all this shit lying around, and that's what they will do. You can already see signs of it in North Queensland where Nick Cater discovered a, 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 a dump of turbine blades. Um, yep. It's already happening. And I just think that we've got to be really sensible and say, 
No one has yet shown that carbon dioxide drives global warming. Uh, we catch uh, particulates coming out of coal-fired power stations. Uh, there is a blend of power that we need in this country. The cheapest power we ever had, and it was worldwide the cheapest, came out of the Yulorn Brown Coal Power Stations. That was three cents a kilowatt hour. We've destroyed a very cheap, very good system and created so much insecurity that there hasn't been reinvestment to keep this system ticking over. So, so with um, with the coal... Um, you know, and, you know, there's ash left over. So I know that Australian black coal is about 8% ash rate, which is one of the best in the world, um, like least amount. Like what's in the what's in the leftover ash? I know that new heli fire, uh, power stations reburn the ash, caption and reburn it, but what's left over in the ash? What, why is it, is it bad? What's, it, what's so bad about it? Um, European coals are very rich in sulphur or northern hemisphere coals are rich in sulphur and high in ash. Australian coals are much lower in ash and much lower in um, sulphur. When you burn a coal, the material left behind that hasn't burnt and given out heat is called ash. A lot of this material is volcanic dust that dropped into the coal swamps. A lot of it is clay that was washed in when floods came into the coal swamps. And when that goes into a um, boiler, uh, then... When you're burning the coal uh, to make steam, um, that material often melts. And so it's very fine, molten, glassy material in in the burner, and then it freezes as little needle-like pieces of glass. If you breathe it in, it can be very, very dangerous. It can cut the inside of your lungs. Some uh, ash left over from burning some coals, but not Australian coals, um, some coal ash is moderately rich in uranium. Um, some coal ash has got a little bit of vanadium and other materials in it. So there's been a lot of projects looking at using that ash. Can we take metals out of it? Can we actually make bricks out of it? Can we use it for making concrete? When you mine underground, you have big spaces left underground. And for rock stress reasons, you need to fill those spaces. Now, those spaces are filled often with a blend of tailings, uh, ash, uh, cement, and a bit of slag. And that solidifies. It actually expands a little bit. So you push the rocks each side to stop stuff falling in. So we can use some of that ash. Most of it we can't. It is completely inert. Uh, in thousands of years' time, it will make a magnificent soil. But at present, it is inert. And this is one of the problems you have with coal-fired power stations, that uh, you get residues left behind. Well, Stephen, I'm sure you've got a clip or something like that, but can you not clip to the graveyard or one of those propellers that have gone up the mountains and show what the residue is left over by um, by um, so-called renewable energy sources? Well, this is this is the this is the propeller from one of the wind farms going up, uh, you know, a path to get to the actual wind farm. Now, some of these are in tropical North Queensland. We spoke to Pamela Jones about this in very sensitive, biodiverse corridors, and they're ripping down trees everywhere to just build the paths to bring these things in. Not to mention the transmission. If you did that as a farmer, you would be jailed. That material is made out um, of. Um, balsa wood and resins and those resins have a chemical in them called bisphenol A 
Uh, bisphenol A is banned in almost every Western country. This is why you can't recycle those laminated turbine blades. This is why they get cut up and dumped. Now, out of that cut up, dumped turbine blade leaches bisphenol A into soils and waterways. This is environmentally the most disgusting thing you can do. Yet, it seems to get the green light from our greens who claim that we have to destroy the planet to save it. And you were saying that with the leftover ash that we bury, we put into the ground, eventually it will become soil. Will those propellers with their bipenthesol A, will that ever become useful to the, the planet? No, it, it is a poison and it's a very long-lived poison. Um, the ash out of coal-fired power stations is glassy. Now, we know from ancient glasses, such as Egyptian glasses, that these 4,000-year-old glasses have started to de-vitrify into crystals. Give them another 4,000 years, they'd be absolutely perfect as a fertiliser. So um, glass takes quite a while to actually denature and crystallise. Glass is actually a supercooled liquid. So to get it into crystals and to get it into particles takes a long time. But the uh, complex organic chemicals that are in those uh, turbine blades are with us forever. Now, how dumb are we? We sell coal to China. They use it to make uh, energy. That energy is then used to make the blades and make the poisons. They then sell us those blades and poisons, and we use them to make unreliable energy and pollute our country, and we have unreliable power as a result. I mean, that's just madness. Madness. It makes no sense. Look, anyone, like people like us, anybody who even looks into it a little bit, and I speak to a lot of people with my job and with everything that we do, and that anyone who has half a brain or half a bit of common sense will turn around and go, we know it's the wrong thing, but there's nothing that we can do about it. Well, it's, you know, what, what, you can, what do can we it. do? Nuclear. Yep. Re-educate carbon dioxide is plant food. It's not a poison. It's not a pollutant. It doesn't drive global warming. Mm. Yeah. We have made one of the biggest financial errors for hundreds of years. The last big one was the Dutch tulip craze in the late 1600s. We have made one of the biggest scientific errors for a long time. The last big one was Lysenkoism, which killed probably 100 million people. We humans do that. We do stupid things. We make mistakes, especially when we're very wealthy and especially when we have systems that are not democratic. Yes. Now, we're getting towards the end now, but I want to sneak in two questions. And Adam might have another couple of questions maybe he wants to sneak in. But the first one you can probably dismiss. It's just a wild card question, or you can maybe expand on it if you wish. But on a previous episode, we had a former Lieutenant Colonel on uh, Alastair Pope. Uh, he had made the claim at the end of the interview that um, – Oil spills can actually be good uh, for the environment. He, he referenced the um, – uh, uh, I'm just gone out of my head now. What was the uh, area that he was – Exxon Valdez. Uh, no, the the, uh, I can't, the Gulf um, – I can't remember I can't the Gulf of Mexico. 
No, no, no. In, in uh, the Middle East, the Persian Gulf. Sorry, the Persian, Persian Gulf. Yes, yeah. Persian Gulf. And he said that it, before before an oil spill there, it had been barren. But after the oil spill, the the, the sea life and and coral, coral grew. Yeah, fish came. Yes, is is that a wild claim or is there any truth behind truth it? Truth to it. No, we we have oil spilling out all the time naturally. And the breakdown of oil by bacteria um, and plankton is, is one of the biological processes that keeps the planet dynamic. Um, it, we we know that we can break down oils. It, it, it's quite a normal process. So um, I, I don't know about the claims of, of uh, Red Sea and, and, and the Persian Gulf um, thriving after it, but um, wouldn't surprise me. So then, so um, just the the composition of oil or like oil, um, it will be it will break down naturally if it's exposed to bacteria and things. So there's yeah. things that actually yeah. need it and consume it. Yeah. bacteria yeah. are the ultimate survivors. Bacteria can live in all sorts of conditions: um, um, wet conditions, dry conditions, cold, hot conditions. They can live in salt. They can live in acid, alkaline conditions. They can live in darkness. They don't need sunlight. They can use chemical uh, processes to actually survive. They don't necessarily um, need to use the common nutrients in the oceans. They can break down complex compounds. Bacteria break down rocks. Bacteria break down metals. Uh, bacteria precipitate gold. Bacteria um, um, can digest poisons. Well, they're the ultimate survivor of everything. And, you know, if we get hit by a dirty big asteroid the size of the moon and the whole planet gets wiped out with complex life, there'll still be bacteria here. Yeah. The bulk of the life on planet Earth is in the top five kilometres of the crust. The biomass of the Earth are not trees, they're not whales, they're bacteria. But they're not sexy. You can't, you can't <laughs> hang up a, a placard on Parliament House saying, save the bacteria. Save the bacteria. <laughs> and, you know, I, go, I go into the, these books for kids talking about the lungs of the Earth, and we get told that the lungs of the Earth is the Amazon. Yeah. And I say, no, that's wrong. The lungs of the earth are the phytoplankton. I don't use that word, but I use the words green slime. So if you want to save the planet, don't go and hug a tree. Go and hug some slime. Yeah, wow. That's <laughs> well, it. What speak, other question have you got, Stephen? Speak, speaking of parliament and uh, bacteria and potentially maybe even green slime, the uh, the little game that we've developed over the last few weeks with some of our uh, previous guests is a little game called Build Your Own Fantasy Parliament or Government. Now, the idea of it is to pick, or well, you're in control of the next government of Australia, and you can pick five or six politicians that may be in the parliament currently, maybe they're out of the parliament, or maybe they're just an expert in a, in a certain field or, or whatever, they're just an ordinary person. But you can pick five or six people to head up the next government of Australia. Is there anyone that you would be able to pick? I like the American system whereby you need not have parliamentarians to be running um, one of the departments. So the Department of Agriculture might be run by an agriculturalist. So in our current parliament, I'd want the blend of people outside the parliament and people in the parliament. So I would like to see um, people such as Matt Canavan and Keith Pitt, um, Pauline Hanson, Malcolm Roberts in our parliament, 
I'd like to see someone who really knows how to run a balance sheet and run a business. Uh, Gina Reinhardt is the only one I can think of who is not woke, who is um, blessed with that rarity called common sense and knows how to actually build things. Uh, because currently the mentality in this country is we won't build anything. Let's destroy it. Let's not build. So I, I would have some of our well, all of the names I mentioned are from Queensland. That's interesting. Wow. So um, mm. uh, Queenslanders have a certain way of thinking, and it's a way I rather like. So that would be my parliament, to have a blend of people from outside the parliament and inside the parliament, a blend of those experienced parliamentary procedures and the games that are played, and people who quite often don't have their voice heard. I mean, we're having this torturous debate in this country now about something called the voice. Now, <laughs> there is a voice. We already have a voice. It's called Parliament. Everyone has a vote. Everyone has a voice through Parliament. Move on. What's the next thing? Yeah. Well, well yeah. Oh, uh, while we're talking about that, I'm very happy, happy to have Warren Mundine in there. Um, was as a good bloke, terrific bloke, and also Jacinta Price. She, she's just fabulous. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, the people that you picked, especially the parliamentarians, you know, everyone picks, or everyone always picks who has, has, has built their little, you know, fantasy politi- political team, always picks somebody from One Nation. Sometimes you get Malcolm <laughs> Roberts, sometimes you get Pauline Hanson, but everyone's always picked you know, one person from the um, Pauline Hanson's One Nation. So I think, maybe... I think Malcolm's been on everyone's list so far, so we're going to have to find someone that doesn't include well, Malcolm. Well, you know, he was a mining engineer. He was the general manager of a coal mine. He knows his stuff. I know Malcolm well. He's a very, very uh, competent person. And Pauline Hanson over the years has just got better and better and better. She is has got her finger on the pulse, and she is a fabulous person. She's very well advised by James Ashby. And um, to me, um, the, the uh, Liberal side of politics has let us down. We don't have a Conservative side in the Liberal Party. Um, the Conservatives are the Nationals and One Nation. Yep. I'd agree with that. <laughs> yep. Okay, so now Professor Plyman is going to be down in Sydney next week at CPAC. He's going to be speaking on the Sunday, the 20th. So anyone heading to CPAC, they'll be able to see Professor Plyman speak there. And get an autographed book. And get yeah, an autographed book. Bring some money for book. the books. We're going to be, Adam and I are going to be lining up to get our own autographed copy as well. And if you want to get the book, you can go to uh, Connor Court Publishing, uh, visit their website. And, uh, you know, as we said before, they're only nineteen ninety five each. Now, Professor Plymer, is there anywhere else they can get the book as well? Uh, we haven't started um, through the distributor getting it out to the bookshops, but um, if you ask a bookshop, they'll order it in for you. But it's best to go direct to Connor Court. It just gets sent to you. It's the quickest way of doing it. And I'll be at Connor Court um, on Thursday the 17th, and I will be signing about a 1,000 books there. Uh, I only sign on a fountain pen, so you know if it's genuine. So if you want a signed copy, get it from Connor Court. Yeah, wow. Awesome. Well, look, mate, I don't know if it's the keto diet or your treatment, but you're on fire tonight. You seem revved up and ready to go. So thank you very much for coming on. This has been a tremendous episode. Thank and you. thank you, Adam and Stephen, for having me yet again.
No, it's been our pleasure. Anytime, and- anytime you release a new book or anytime you want to, you know, stick it to Guterres or any one of those guys, just click <laughs> us a message and we'll get you on and, and we'll, we'll fill it. We can, we'll fill it. We'll find something to fill the hour with anyway. Excellent. Good. Yep, and for everyone watching, thank you for watching. Please share this out, uh, as we say that every uh, every week. Uh, you know, it's it's up to our listeners to to spread this knowledge out to everyone, and we thank you very much for all of that. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.